Hello, you're listening to Alfie Moore's Plodcast with me, a veteran cop turned comedian, Alfie Moore. Each week on this podcast, I'll be discussing policing matters with a special guest and trying to show you a little of what actually goes on in the police force. As always, I'm joined by Will, the producer. Hey, Alfie. Hi, Will. And today's special guest is serving police sergeant Phil Matthews. Hello. Hello. Now, Phil has been a police officer with the Nottinghamshire Force for over 27 years. The vast majority of that time has been spent on the front line after becoming involved in the PFEW, the Police Federation of England and Wales, at local, regional level, is now a national Fed rep and chair of conduct and performance. Uh, I myself have an exemplary uh, discipline record, partly because I have extremely high levels of integrity, uh, but mainly because... Uh, there were no camera phones on the streets to <laughs> record some of my uh, arrest and restraint techniques, uh, which uh, some people have described as robust. What was your first arrest for then? I think it was criminal damage. It was uh, a couple, uh, two twin sisters, um, actually, and their mother couldn't control them and they'd smashed the house up. Um, and uh, and yeah, then it was it was a bit of a fight. They were, I think they were both teenage. That must uh, be scary. Twin thirteen year old. Yeah, about thirteen year old twin girls um, that uh, had had completely smashed the house up. Uh, ended up having to drag them out of the house and take them down to the police station. Baptism of fire. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so uh, you're back as a sergeant. And then you went into neighbourhood policing? Yeah, I did a, a couple of years um, on response units locally. Uh, we had a big response shift around. Like all forces, they move things around and turn everything upside down every couple of years. So I did a few years as a response officer, as a response sergeant, leading a team, um, a bit of time in custody. And then I spent uh, a wonderful eight years running a whole uh, housing estate um, with, a, with a small team of, uh, of, of my cops. So you mentioned custody there as custody sergeant? Yes, yeah, I used to fill in on a regular basis. Did, did you either love that job, being inside all the time, just being in the cell block, dealing with prisoners in the charge room, you either love that job or it gets a bit overpowering, you know, doesn't it? Yeah, you know? everybody's skin turns yellow because you don't see daylight um, and, uh, and you just don't ever get a break. Did it, did it suit you? I didn't. I didn't mind it because I was. I was only. I used to do it a couple of days a week rather than as a full-time role. Uh, I used to fill in for all the other. And everybody's sides. angry, aren't they? There's everybody's not many angry. happy prisoners coming. In. Everybody's angry. <laughs> all you do deal with is angry people. Uh, everybody's time. drunk, uh, yeah. on drugs, or has mental health issues. Mm. None of them want to be there, and because they've already been arrested, they don't care. So they all want to kick off. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult, challenging environment to work in. Uh, but it can be quite rewarding because you you are there literally supervising the, the younger cops as they're coming and bringing people in, and you can really have a massive impact on the way that they deal with those uh, offenders and make sure they do it properly. And I've, I used to find it quite rewarding, but, but I guess quite you frustrating get frustrating at the same time. You're involved in a lot of complaints in one way or another in that job, I should think, because... Everybody wants to complain when they're in custody because they don't think they should be there. Um, so they all want to complain at the time. Not that many of them actually translate into real complaints once they sober up and they get out the next day. Um, but yes, it is a challenging environment that is ripe for conflict. So 
you start to do more and more federation work. Can you just explain the, the, the federation? Is it the same as a trade union? Uh, or it's or very similar to a trade union, only we are, uh, we are um, not allowed to be members. As Crown servants, we're not allowed to be members of any form of union. So, so legally, a police officer cannot strike. We can't strike. We can, have no employment rights. Um, can we they, are are they allowed servants. legally to take any other form of industrial action? No. Nope. Uh, we, uh, we are Crown servants, so we are not employees. We have no employment contract. We uh, literally do as we're told. A lot of the laws that govern employment law don't apply to us. Uh, a lot of uh, the only thing that does really apply is some of the health and safety legislation. But even some of that uh, doesn't apply in terms of the hours of work. Uh, so we are very, very few. So it's more, more like the armed forces than, than a normal job, very I guess. Very much so. And if you look at our rules and regulations, um, they are very much structured around the way the army um, worked at the time and that was very much seen as the way to go do about business so we have very little in the way of protections apart from our, our rules and regulations that we have to abide by uh, and, and, uh, and that's why um, the police federation came about it was a way of allowing the ordinary officers to air their grievances without actually then feeling so aggrieved that they, they withdraw their labour What are the big national challenges? What, what, is, what would what are the big At the moment, the national challenges are numbers. Massively, we've been hugely cut. Uh, we've lost 22,000 officers and an equivalent number of support staff, I think about 18,000 support staff. Policing is a numbers game. We've had some good, good news lately, if, if Boris Johnson is to be believed. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, 20,000 extra, extra cots will be a massive welcome from our perspective, and we've said so. But what we need to make sure is that uh, that is actually extra and not just replacing those that are leaving. Um, uh, the demographics at the moment, over the next three years, we'll lose about 20,000 officers. So you need to recruit that many over that period anyway just to stand still. So really when he talks about 20,000 extra, what he really means is 40,000, which is a massive challenge. Um, and that doesn't even take us back to where we were a few years ago. We're still below where we were five, six years ago. And, and then you've got to have all the support staff that were there supporting those officers to allow them to stay out and about um, feeling collars and arresting people. So How I will do you get people that. into the police? I think, I think part of that is, is we as, a, as an organisation have to you know, extol the virtues of, of, of cops. We have to defend them. We have to try and make sure that the public know all the good work that we do and the value and the, uh, the good that we do for society. And we have to try and get away from some of the headlines that some of the papers like to beat us with, because we're a really easy target. Um, when anything goes wrong, well, it's their fault. Uh, and we're in this sort of blame cycle. It's very American, isn't it, that where there's blame, there's a claim. If something goes wrong, somebody must be at fault. Well, actually, and you'll know this, Alfie, we deal with some very bad, mad, dangerous individuals who lead chaotic lifestyles, who make very, very bad life choices. And things go wrong. Life is dangerous. And, you know, when bad things happen, we tend to be the beating stick. You know, it must yeah. be the police. The police should have intervened earlier. The police should have kept that person in prison. You know, we, we seem to be taking the brunt, and we can't answer back. So partly as a federation, it's our job to actually answer back on behalf of our members to try and right some of those... Um, wrong perceptions that the media portray our members in. So, specifically complaints, which is another thing that yep. the media, the newspapers, like to talk about. I've got some numbers here. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, 
correct me if, if these are wrong to your knowledge. So about 4,000 internal complaints against police and about 32,000 to 34,000 complaints against police officers generated or the complaints against police, I should yeah, say, there'll be a different uh, generated by the public. Sounds like big numbers, those. It, it does, and the headline figure. I mean, it, it's been static at around 34,000, 36,000 um, complaints a year for the last few years. That sounds like an awful lot of complaints, but when you think there are 120-odd thousand police officers around the country, of England and Wales, not talking Scotland or Ireland here, 120-odd um, thousand police officers working 24-7, 365 days of the year. My own force control room takes about a million calls a year from members of the public in terms of 999s and calls for assistance. And that's just some of the interaction that cops have every working day with members of the public. They, you know, they might talk to 50, 100 people in a day. Um, so that's millions and millions and millions and millions of interactions every single day um, of up and down the country. And 30-odd thousand complaints when you look at the number of interactions, particularly when we are pitting our cops into situations where you only ever meet people when something bad's happened to them, they're having a bad day, something, you know, or you're trying to tell them that they're doing something wrong or they've done something wrong. Um, so you're, you're meeting them in the worst of their circumstances. They're already having a bad they're day. They're already having a bad day, and we're making <coughs> their day even worse. And then you come along. And we yeah. come along. So you're, 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 you're at a low ebb. When you put it in that perspective, you, I mean, it's not like Tesco's, is it? No, no. You're complaining about the, the sort of corned beef. You, well, if you, you, if you look at it in terms of a, a shop, well, you know, other shops are available, um, you, you've probably got a similar number of interactions to the amount of customers that go through that shop, that sort of supermarket up and down the country every day. But they're not they as angry. Would, they, they're not as angry. But you, you would kill for that level of customer complaints um, uh, as, a, as a customer service organisation, as a percentage of, a, of it was that low, of the overall interactions, <coughs> yeah. it's minuscule. Yeah. Mm. But then, when you delve deeper, the people that complain about us, yes, some are genuine, um, but a lot of them are people that are trying to divert attention away from their own wrongdoing. Um, they are trying to get out of what they've done wrong. They're trying to minimise their own wrongdoing. The people that are criminals that are trying to make life difficult for the cops that have dealt with them that are trying to make life, uh, they're trying to get, where there's blame, there's a claim, they're trying to get money, there are, are there chasing lawyers that are involved sometimes Are there well. serial complainers? Very much so, very much so, and, and there are some some uh, some ones that that are genuine in, in, in amongst that, and that's the professional standards department job to try and weed out the... Prof so what typical complaints, if you get a police officer that's received a complaint and it's been formalised, a formal complaint, so it's been yep. served with... A notice, yeah. A notice, we used to call it a reg... The reg 15. 15 now, yeah. okay. So with the regulation 15 notice, and that, that Bobby, what would have happened then? To, just talk us through what would happen to that Bobby. Uh, does the inspector ask him into the office and say, PC Moore, take a seat, I've got some news for you? Yep, they'll get that notice. The inspector will serve a notice on them, will caution them, same as you would if you were cautioning you if it stopped you for a traffic offence. Uh, it's slightly worded slightly differently, but it's very similar... Um, make them sign for receipt of the notice, and we then get. Which is quite. That's quite intimidating, isn't it? Even yeah. though you're a cop, yeah. that, that is quite. That, that's not a nice um, feel. It puts them on notice that they're being investigated. And how much information will, will they be given about the company? It'll usually be the bare bones. So it'll be, um, you know, that you were. Um, you're, it's alleged that you assaulted person X whilst you arrested them, and that you arrested them unlawfully, or whatever it happens to be. So if, if there is uh, that difference of opinion. 
where the uh, person arrested, the mm. prisoner, thought that the, the force was excessive. Yeah. And uh, the officer has been served with the papers. You have a chat with the officer. He's got a different view on it. Mm. He, he doesn't think it was excessive. Uh, is it likely that will progress to a formal interview for that officer? Yes. Um, How does that work then? What, what sort of setup would that be? Well, right. Okay. So, for your use of force, which is which is majority of uh, of our complaints, um, there might be very little in the way of independent evidence. So, your, your typical arrest outside the pub, you know, back street somewhere. There's no CCTV. The officer hasn't got a body worn camera on, for example or they have but the footage is not great or whatever so who's going to be in the interview you, the, you're going to you're going to have somebody from the official side so some, some officer and have a statement taken from them about what their version of events was uh, the investigating officer from professional standards will have um, so that'll be a police officer who, who works in the professional It'll standards be either our police... version of ac12 yeah 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 they don't believe everything you see on the <laughs> telly um yes so they be... will you be there Yes, uh, there will be either a police officer or a civilian employee that works within uh, professional standards, probably two of them, in fact, um, interviewing you, as that's best practice. Um, there'll be our, the officer and a, a, a friend that they want to there. It doesn't have to be a federation member. It can be anybody that they choose. So, so, so the officer won't have a, a legal representative at this not stage? If it's, um, not if it's simple misconduct. Right. Um, if it's a criminal allegation, then we will engage a solicitor for them. Uh, to give them advice, uh, potentially. So that, it depends on the allegations. So the vast majority of allegations fall away. Probably 85 90% of allegations are baseless, um, and the officers have done what's expected of them. It's just that the member of the public doesn't like it yeah. um, and, or, or, has mis or has misunderstood the rationale. And but sometimes this, you just need to explain something to them. We've done this in this way because but this is legislation that backs it up. Interview setup, which presumably is recorded, sounds yes. exactly the same as a suspect interview Very that much. would have happened to the, the, the original guy in the cell. So it's identical. Identical setup, yes. which is a bit really intimidating for a cop, isn't it? Yeah, if, especially, the the desk. <laughs> especially, you know, if their view is that, that everything they did was reasonable and, and, and yet they're being formally interviewed under yes. caution on tape. But that's quite can, stressful, it, isn't it? It can be, and depending on the severity of the complaint... Um, before that happens, the officer could be restricted, they could be suspended. Restricted duties? So, yeah, so, so they could be put into an office um, somewhere, counting paper clips or, you know, doing something... No contact with the public? Yeah, so they could be stopped from having any part in the evidential chain, so they can't go to court, they can't put the files in, which will restrict where they can work, they can't have contact with the public, potentially, depending on the allegations. So the more yeah. serious allegations are more likely to have restrictions or suspension put on the person. Um, but... Then, uh, so, so then they've got the stress of, oh, my God, this must be serious because they've stopped me doing the job. Um, and then they're waiting. And, again, those ones tend to, you know, they'll wait until they've gathered all the available evidence from everybody else, and then they'll come to an interview. And then they'll be waiting still, restricted or suspended, or, or, or carrying on working, not knowing what's going to happen to them. Presumably that can take a long time. It, it can. And some of the cases we've had, you know, have gone on for years. Um, particularly with the what's now called the IOPC, the Independent Office of Policing Conduct. Um, we've had cases, I mean, the one big, big one in the Met that finished at the beginning of this year, the uh, Sean Rigg inquiry, uh, that was a death in custody, and uh, that went on for ten and a half years. Wow. Ten and a half years, wow. and uh, some of the officers were suspended for over five years of that ten and a half years. So literally being paid by the Met 
to not come into work. I should imagine a high percentage never go back to work. No, two of those officers, one of them uh, tried to, uh, was become a priest in the interim and is now has, has his own parish down towards Brighton and um, um, and has le- and left the police the, the day the day after he could. Uh, another one literally left the day after the hearing, could have, could have, should have retired several years ago but wasn't allowed to. Um, and had to stay on, and, and then has left. But it's left of it's that ruined. relationship changes, doesn't it? It's uh, I mean, I know it's a serious yeah. allegation, but people will die in custody sometimes. It's, unfortunately, uh, it's inevitable. Yeah, but, you know, you, you put people in a room, and, and they're going to die somewhere. And sometimes that death happens to occur in a police cell. Life is a fatal disease, <laughs> yeah. and that's classed as, as, as death in police custody or a death after police contract as well. We use, don't we? And and that is handed over to the IOPC for a formal investigation. And, and, and yet, you know, these may be good officers that are completely changed the relationship with, mm. with the, the police and they don't want to be cops anymore when the, the, the process and the, is finished. And again, particularly when you're talking deaths following police contact, um, it, we get into this whole scenario. And there was another one the other, the other week that finished where uh, a drug dealer had tried to swallow the drugs as he got stopped they were trying to arrest him uh, with, the, with the drugs and he pushed them down the back of his throat and tried to swallow them and choked to death on the plastic bags that they were in. And, um, and those officers had been doing the best they can. They were doing CPR. I'm trying to, they couldn't, they'd gone so far down they couldn't see anything, so they couldn't get anything out. And unfortunately, the guy died. And um, thankfully, that, that inquest has just finished and um, the coroner um, basically exonerated those officers. But they've had years of hell an interesting point that, that you mentioned before we started was that there's all sorts of figures uh, all over the media about bias within the criminal mm-hmm. justice system, normally around black minority ethnic groups, more likely to be uh, stop search, more likely to be arrested, charged, uh, given a heavier sentence at court. Uh, interestingly, which I think is fascinating, you believe there's, there may be evidence to suggest that there's a bias against serving police officers within the criminal justice system? Very much so. Um, because of the sort of media that comes out, there's, there's a very... The media tend to be very anti-police, particularly when there's a, a, a bad news story. It's like, oh, it, this is public news, this is public interest. And it could be a relatively minor infringement, a minor crime allegation. But because it's a cop, it's sort of escalated. It's much more serious because it's not a police officer involved. So when those allegations go to the Crown Prosecution Service to be considered, they almost go into apoplexy and, and, and think, oh, my God, we can't be seen to be favouring the police because we're the Crown. Um, so we'll let the court decide. So our members, we feel get charged when the evidence isn't there to actually support the charge. Because how the system should work, if I could just say, is that there's uh, an evidential test that the the CPS solicitor or or, or lawyer, there's a public interest test and an evidential test, and it's got to meet a certain threshold before they will authorise a charge. Um, And what you're saying is it hasn't reached that threshold, but because it's a copper, We'll charge them anyway and let let the jury decide. Which raises expectations. Um, So the media then report on the fact, oh, PC Matthew's been uh, been charged. So the public think, well, there must be something in it because he's been charged. He's going to court. And then they'll report at the court case or they'll report at the the hearing. And and it's all over the news. And they're they're trying to sit there with the kids going, they don't need to worry about it. And and they're on the the TV, you know, on the the evening news um, when they find out they've been charged and things like that. And, And about... 65% of 
are cases that are, are members' cases that, that get charged to court, which is very few number in number, by the way, um, end up being acquitted or the case is pulled at court, so they don't ever get there. Ordinary members of the public that are charged, it's about 85% are convicted. So 85% yeah. convicted. As opposed uh, to 65% acquitted. Yeah. yeah. So um, the, the, the differential is huge. So uh, a couple of quick questions then. I think I know the answer to this. I think you mentioned yeah. it already. What's your view on body-worn cameras, help or hindrance? Uh, in general, help. Help. Uh, do you support the call for all cops to carry tasers? Yes, 100%. I'd use one. Okay. What's your view on arming police officers? I think we need to have a, a larger capability. I personally, and this is a personal call, not an organisational position from the Federation, personally I don't feel I would want to carry one uh, because if you carry one you've got to be prepared to use it uh, and I would and I'd find myself in that lonely square yard as the accused um, because I know how the system works. And I think it changes the way we police in this country. Do you then use it? Um, and if you do, what are the public going to think? Because I, I know the answer to that, and I don't think they've been very happy if we start shooting people. How would you improve the police without chucking loads of money at it? Ooh, um, without chucking loads of money at it, I think um, the first thing I would do was I would uh, empower my cops. I would get rid of I – would, I would make the system – um, the complaint system uh, less punitive to it I, you know if I was in charge I would be publicly supporting the cops and I would be trying to get the media to publicly support them so when something goes wrong my first reaction wouldn't be oh my god let's have an inquiry I would I would come from a position of well let's support our officers and actually believe what they're saying as a, as a first rule rather than until proven otherwise but if it is a mistake what it, can we learn yeah, from it what can we learn from it do you think stress and mental illness within police officers, do you see, see it rising in your role? It's massively escalated, and a lot of that is down to the cuts in numbers because our officers are now working on their own predominantly, uh, except in the very inner cities um, where, well, they're still working on their own, but there's people closer. Majority of forces like mine that don't work in the inner conurbations, uh, sometimes if they shout for assistance, it's coming from a different county. So you, you could be 30, 40 minutes before somebody gets to you if you're in trouble. And that is, you know, three minutes is a long time to wait, but 30 minutes is, is, your, is, is life or death in some cases. And, um, you know, so, so that, is, that is taking its toll. And they're always working on their own, not getting any breaks. They're not getting food breaks. They're not getting meal breaks. They're not getting um, their rest days off. They're having those cancelled for events. Notting Hill Carnival in London this last week. Uh, officers are working their days off you know they're not getting any breaks they're just run down and there's only so long you can run on empty for before it it, it starts taking an effect on you physically as well as mentally. It feels so similar this conversation to conversations you hear about the NHS doesn't it it's yeah. it's so similar. And, and the other factor of course. Something that's just on the brink and just yeah. sort of it wouldn't take very much no, for it to just and, suddenly. And we've seen a massive rise in the number of Long service cops that are leaving, just exactly. walking away. Just like the NHS, you're losing good people. 10, 12, 15 years service, and they're just going, you know what, stuff this for a game of soldiers. I'm off somewhere that's going to treat me decently. I'm not going to have to work all the hours that God sends, and I'm going to get paid yeah. and rewarded for the work I do. And it's great if, if the politicians are as good as a word and there's 20,000 new cops, but they're 20,000 brand new 
unskilled, untrained cops, what value would you put on a police officer with 15 years service that's mm. worked in CID, that's worked in traffic, that's worked in a custody suite, that, 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 that's done all that, and then yeah. they walk? You know, you can't afford to lose good mm. people like that. That's a valuable resource. And again, will, will those 20,000 stay? Because now they've made it a degree entry. You've got to do this degree course to, to be sort of qualified. Um, so they're doing that in their own time. They've lowered the starting wage. Um, so they're taking the same risks as I am, only they're getting paid less than you would if you worked in McDonald's. Um, uh, but it's seen as, well, we're giving you a degree. Well, they're not. It's the same course that we used to do, but it's spread over three years and you have to write a thesis at the end and they'll call it a vocational degree. And, and it, it's a con. It's, it's smoke and mirrors from the government in order and, and the forces in order to get back but if you drop the starting mm. pay, that's got to affect the quality of well, recruits, we've, surely. We've seen it massively. Uh, the dropout rate's going up. Uh, the age is going down. So we're now predominantly getting 18, 19-year-olds coming into the service. So we're not getting any of those people with life experience, career changes. Anybody with a family just can't afford to start. And some of them 18-year-old kids are going to have a shock, aren't they? Oh, massively. We get people coming out of that training and go, <laughs> what do you mean I've got to work a night shift? <laughs> Well, duh, did you not read the job description? Um, and, and, and they go, oh, I'm going, I want to go home, I'm tired. <laughs> and it's just, you've not it's, read the small print. You've kid. not read the small print. And, uh, and, and we, literally we've got people like that, and you, just, you just burst out laughing when they say something to you, and you just think, oh, my God. And, and I think one of the universities, I won't say which one, um, had, uh, was pillory the other day for a job advert, and you'll love this. Um, not done well in your A-levels. Why not phone us up and consider a degree, um, a degree course, and join the police? <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah. And yet they're trying to say you need a degree to become a cop, yeah, but then yeah, in the yeah, same yeah, breath yeah. they're going, "Well, doesn't matter. Fail to pay levels. We'll still give you a degree. Do that. This, but you'll be a cop." And what is that? Is just a massive own goal for uh, yeah. for policing. You know, the other thing: every job rests or falls on that first officer that gets there. And if we're putting young 18-year-olds, and it's predominantly that's all it's going to be on the front line, um, into those situations. Every job, you know, the most serious job, your murders, mm. it rests or falls on that first officer that gets there, that preserves the scene, that takes notes, that grabs hold of And you the, need the experience on that shift. Boy, that, boy, that, it can't that be preserves a the forensics, and if they're straight, you know, that's, you know... You need experience. Know, we've all been young in service. I can remember going to jobs... And I've, I've only been in a year, and I'm going to scenes, and I'm thinking, oh, I hope somebody else gets here quickly. I hope Frank, the old time ship, gets here and tells me what to do, because I'm guessing... When that happened to you, Alfie, you would have been one of, you know, there would have been a lot of other people on your shift, and people, uh, experience stayed on shifts. Yeah. Uh, whereas now, our front line is predominantly young, in-service cops without a great deal of experience, and, and, and if we inject 40,000 new, uh, you know, fresh cops into that space, that's all it's going to be. Yeah. And they're going to get battered, bruised. They're, a lot of the jobs are going to disappear because they just won't and even have the experience mistakes. to see what, what they're looking at. They're going to make mistakes, and that is going to become entrenched, and that will become the way that they do things. Um, you know, so, and, if, and if you hive off stuff, too much stuff, like the highways agency are doing the motorways now, um, you've got the crime agency, allegedly, National Crime Agency, doing this, the more senior stuff. The more you de-skill and decompartmentalize policing, you lose that cross-pollination of, of ideas, experience, and all of a sudden you'll get to a position where somebody will stop a car 
and they'll give somebody a ticket for the seatbelt, but they won't bother because they haven't got the experience of actually looking into who's in the car. It could be a wanted person, there could be a gun in the glove box, a body in the boot, and a kilo of cocaine in the spare wheel. And you lo- and and because we're compartmentalising everything, and, and you know, and that's a real danger for me and a real concern. Phil, you have a really important role within the organisation, and I'm I'm sure you've helped many police officers through difficult and yeah. stressful times. We end with our guests reading out the rights as fast as possible. This is what we call the time trial. Did I warn you about this, Phil? Uh, you did. Okay. Have you been practising? No, I forgot all about it. <laughs> okay. I'd like to thank my guests. This, I'd like to thank my guests this week, Sergeant Phil Matthews. Uh, this has been a Black Dog television production. I've been Alfie Moore, and thanks for listening. Take it away, Phil. You don't have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questions something you should later on at court. Anything you do say can be given evidence. Do you understand? 5.23 seconds. I think you're our new leader, Phil. Well done. You've got to the top of the, uh, top of the leaderboard. I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming, mate. Appreciate no it. Problem. Cheers. Thanks Glad a lot. Glad to be here.